Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode 106. Our guest this month is Holly L. Durr, a playwright, director, and professor of theater. Holly wrote an article for HowlRound.com, an online theater magazine slash blog. The article was called, Hashtag Me Too, Power, Complicity, and Collective Responsibility. The article describes her own high school theater experience with inappropriate sexual behavior, then goes on to talk about, at the time of this interview, the only five high-status male theater professionals to have been accused of sexual abuse and removed from their places of employment. Holly's article continues on to talk about the American Theater article by writer Dieppe Tron, who interviewed over a hundred women who related their own sexual assault stories. Uh, there's so much more to this topic that can be, can't be done justice to in an intro, so we are just going to ask Holly to tell it her way. I got into theater because of my parents, because they took me when I was young. Um, I, I think something that they still might regret to this day. <laughs> Um, I, so I got hooked early and I knew I wanted to do it. And the first time I really had a chance was in high school. Um, and you know, we had one theater teacher as many high schools do. So he was the only game in town. Uh, it wasn't a very popular thing to do in my high school. You know, we, we didn't have enough kids interested in it to do like the big musicals that a lot of high school, a lot of high schools do. We did smaller shows that really were picked around these five women who were really interested in, in making theater. Um, and, and it was really this one theater teacher, his name was Christopher Nichols, um, and the, and the five women. Um, and the thing that still surprises me about it to this day is that I absolutely knew that the way he was treating us was wrong, but it never once occurred to me to say anything to anybody. It just didn't enter my mind that maybe I could put a stop to it or that maybe um, the school would want to know that this was happening, that maybe they didn't know. So there was no reality of a possibility of finding some way to address or redress this. Yeah. Yeah. It just didn't enter my mind. Now, I hope that young women today, you know, are a little bit more educated about it um, and do realize that they can say something. In fact, it was you know, I think maybe 10 years after I had graduated that someone did finally complain and he got fired for doing the kinds of things that he did to us, which were, you know, it was anything from simply standing too close to us when he talked to actually putting his arms around us and kind of pressing his body up to ours, um, talking about our bodies all the time, talking about the way that we looked, um, looking at our breasts when he talked to us instead of our faces uh, you know, all of the kind of stuff that you hear in all the other stories, he was doing all of that. Um, and we didn't like it at all. We were deeply uncomfortable with it. We called him the dirty old man. Um, and and yet we didn't realize that we had a right to say no. Because dirty old man was, dirty old manism was normalized at that particular point. Absolutely. Yeah. And this was in the um, late 80s, early 90s. So it was even more normalized than it is now that yes, there are just men like this in the world and you just tolerate it. That's kind of what we, we thought. Well, uh, that, that kind of image has been, uh, uh, has been around for as long as I can remember. Uh, it's one of those things where we congratulate it. We, we give virility to it. We attach uh, a certain heroic maleness to it. I mean, all this stuff sounds really, really sick and it is, but it was one of those things that a lot of males grew up with that they were taught, hey, this is the way things work. Yep. 
Yeah. So you say he was was finally brought down about 10 years later? He was, yes, which is something that I, you know, only sort of heard, um, I think I heard through my mother, who stayed in touch with other mothers um, and kind of still knew what was going on at the school for a few years after I had left. And so I don't really know the details of it. Um, But it, it gave me the impression that the the high school had actually kind of known that it was going on mm. and was just waiting for a, a, an obvious reason to fire him for it. Like, it seemed like, you know, they responded so quickly to this complaint that it was um, it was not a surprise to them that it was going on. Wow. Uh, that seems to be one of the more constant threads. And I do want to address that. We will address that. But I want to put that off until a little bit later in the interview. Okay. Um, because we can go back to, to everything. I mean, even including, even though, even the whole thing with Penn State, okay, they knew about, about what was going on with that one coach, and yet they did absolutely nothing about it. And that seems to be a trend, or it seems yeah. to be a regularity in a lot of these places where, yes, we kind of know what's going on, but we're not going to address it because of various reasons. Um, so you continued in theater. Tell us a little bit uh, about your theater career. Um, so I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, <clears throat> which at the time had a student-run theater called the Lab Theater. And it was student-run in every way. There were student producers, designers, directors, actors. We really did the whole thing. Um, we had to get permission for which plays we were going to do from the chair. Um, but beyond that, it was really it was really our deal. And that's really why I chose UNC. I wanted to go somewhere where the students could um, really make their own work. And then there was also some faculty directed productions. Uh, There was a graduate acting program there. And of course there's Playmakers repertory there. And so I really had a great, great college experience in the sense that I got to do undergrad work um, of my own that I had a lot of ownership of, but I also got to be a part of and witness um, work happening at several levels up at the graduate level and then the professional level. So I really could see kind of the trajectory of a, of a career in the theater. Um, so I had a really great experience there. I was a producer of the undergraduate theater for several years and directed um, uh, five full productions in the time that I was there as an undergrad, which I didn't realize at the time is apparently very unusual. I thought, oh, everybody probably does this. Um, <laughs> I actually got to direct a lot as an undergrad. You enjoy directing? Um, oh, I, I love it. Yeah. Of the of the many hats that I wear, it's probably the, my primary identity is my identity as a director. But you um, also write too. Yes. Uh, yeah, I define myself as a director, a writer, and a professor. Um, so I wear at least three hats, uh, and I still do some producing of a kind as well. Um, so I and in college I was mainly focused on the writing and I mean I'm on the uh, directing and the producing aspects of things, um, and from there I moved to New York City and it was one of those decisions that was kind of like well um, I mm. think that's what you're supposed to do right a lot of people do that right and a lot of my friends were doing it and I was like well I don't really have anywhere else to move um, I grew up in Texas and I didn't want to go back and live in Texas anymore. Um, so I moved to New York City. You know, my friends were doing it, and um, it seemed like a, a grand adventure. Uh, and it was. And I worked administratively in theater there for an organization called the League of American Theaters and Producers. Um, I think it's now called the Broadway League, but it's basically the um, uh, trade organization for Broadway theater owners and producers. They produce the Tonys. Gotcha. 
Um, so I worked for them for a year and then I worked for the public theater, New York Shakespeare Festival for a couple of years. And the whole time that I was doing that, I was also running my own theater company. I founded a nonprofit um, and produced and directed in different venues across the city. Um, sometimes I produced and other people directed. Sometimes I both produced and directed. What was the name of the company? It was called SKT Inc., which stood for Some Kind of Theater. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of work did you produce? Um, well, uh, it was a combination of stuff. Um, I am and always have been interested equally in Shakespeare and new plays. Um, and that's really what I was doing even then. I was doing my own productions of kind of re-envisioned Shakespeare. And then I was working with playwrights on new works. And, and, and both of them were done. Uh, the mission of the company was to appeal specifically to uh, a Gen X. You know, at the time, Gen X was about 18 to 35 years old, an 18 mm -hmm. to 35 year old Gen X specific audience using, um, you know, pop culture and um, pop music and all of that kind of stuff to make the theater into something more, um, more, uh, more of a popular media form and less of a sort of high art. Yeah, a little bit more accessible. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem with Shakespeare's accessibility. Exactly. Although exactly. I have heard from so many women <laughs> that they put down Shakespeare because the roles for women are usually uh, less than fulfilling. Yes. Well, even then I was doing gender flipping, which is something that I do now. I actually started doing gender flipping in, in college at the University of North Carolina, um, particularly with Shakespeare. So finding as many roles um, in the show that I could change to be either to have a female play it as a man or actually change the role to be a woman without it affecting the plot in any way. Mm. Um, and cool. Yeah, that has always been a part of my mission. You know, at most undergraduate programs have more women in them than men. Um, and yet, as we know, the canon is largely male. And so it's very hard to choose a season right. uh, at, at an undergraduate school that really provides opportunities for the students. And so um, as a as a student producer at UNC, I started looking for plays that have more roles for women, and I started gender flipping, and have continued to do that um, ever since. Have made made a real practice out of it. And and at first, it was really just about providing opportunities. Um, at at a certain point, though, it also became about the kind of social sociological experiment and learning what does it tell us about the nature of sex and gender if we can flip these characters. You know, how, what does it tell us about what masculinity is if a woman can be masculine on stage just as easily as a man can? What does it tell us about femininity um, if, if a character that was written to be male actually becomes somewhat feminine? Hmm. Um, what so did it tell you? I'd be really interested to hear that. Um, mostly it told me that the constructs, the binary of if you're male, you're masculine, and if you're female, you're feminine, it told me that that binary was completely false. <laughs> that that's not really a thing. Um, that certainly there are some men who are mostly masculine and some women who are mostly feminine. But more often, people have characteristics of both um, and are actually able to rather fluidly move between them. So I think, for example, of, of sex as a biological characteristic that obviously without um, uh, transitioning and actually going through a change, um, we are the sex that we are. We can't change our chromosomes. But our gender is something that is kind of learned and performed. Um, and I can, for example, choose to adopt some more masculine traits if I think they're going to serve me, say, in a job interview or something like that. 
um, or if I'm uh, a, a you know a person who wants to be a leader, I can um, I can learn to behave in more uh, what people think of as masculine um, behaviors that are that are associated with leaders. Now, of course, I can also be feminine and be a leader as well, and that's the other thing that you learn from doing these gender switches. If you make the king into a woman. Um, and she is wearing a dress and is really pretty, then suddenly you realize, well, actually you can still be a leader and you can still be re- really powerful and also wear fancy jewelry. True. Does well, that make sense? Yes, no, that makes perfect, perfect sense. Uh, our local theater company, uh, Shakespeare Theater Company, Ithaca Shakespeare, is uh, doing that very thing with their upcoming production of As You Like It, turning the Duke into a Duchess. Oh, great. Yes. Um, so that's going to be it an interesting experiment to see how that works. Um, it's been done before and it's been done many, many times successfully. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a step on the way to normalizing the uh, elements of leadership, I guess, what it takes to be a leader, regardless of sex, gender. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I think the more, the more often people see that kind of same thing on stage, the more likely they are willing to accept it, um, as normal in their real lives. That would be a plus, I think. Okay, so in all this experience that you've had, because uh, I want to go back to the article and I want to go back to the, uh, the Me Too incidents, which, you know, uh, started this whole thing. Um, your article for HowlRound, how did that come about? Um, well, you know, I have uh, been talking publicly about harassment um, actually since just a little bit before the Me Too movement started, um, I became particularly concerned with what I I perceived was happening at a lot of um, colleges and universities where students were being exploited by either male faculty members or guest directors who were brought in um, who who really embodied this kind of, um, you know, it's the stereotype of the artistic male genius who's dark and brooding and um, and, and the abuses of those men are written off as a product of their genius somehow. And so it's okay if they act that way. And I was seeing that happen at colleges and universities and was really troubled about what we were teaching young artists about what to expect from uh, a career in the, in the field. So I had actually started writing about that a little bit um, a year or so before the Me Too campaign started. I wrote about, I wrote an article for, um, HowlRound called Bro Theater, a dangerous dynamic. Mm. Um, that actually, I got a lot of pushback on that. I described the characteristics of what I called this bro theater, um, which was a, a, a kind of theater that like involved a glorification of violence, of of sexual violence, of drinking and debauchery. Um, that that often required people to be nude. Um, women to be tied up, to be restrained. To, um, there was a lot of rape in these kinds of stories. Right. Um, and I actually, I got a ton of pushback on the article at the time. It's really interesting to think in comparison to how people are responding to these issues now. I had a lot of people saying, that doesn't happen. That's not a real thing. That's way too extreme to be real. And a few years later, I think people were having their eyes open to an extent that they were willing to accept that this kind of thing really is still happening. And that just because maybe they haven't seen it happen around them doesn't mean that it's not still a pretty pervasive problem. 
So when um, the TCG issue came up, which was, of course, that they had solicited stories from survivors and then decided not to publish the details of the stories, um, I actually contacted HowlRound and pitched them about writing a piece about it. Um, so they were they were excited to have me do that, but it was my idea that I, I approached them about that. Um, and what we decided to do in that article was not necessarily go after TCG. Um, we didn't want to just write an article telling the other theater publication, <laughs> the other national theater publication, you know, what, what we thought they should do. Um, right, but so yeah. we decided to sort of open it up a little bit more broadly to discuss the journalism that had been really successful um, around uncovering these kind of predators and the importance of that journalism. And I particularly really wanted to hold up the Theater Jones article um, that was published, uh, I believe it was the end of 2017, about Lee Troll. Right. Yeah, that was that was a killer article. Oh, my gosh. It was yeah. so well done. And it was this tiny, tiny organization with no resources. You know, TCG's argument at the time was that they just didn't have the resources to pursue this kind of investigative journalism. But Theater Jones has far fewer resources than TCG or American Theater does. Um, and they they were brave enough to put this story out there and to risk themselves um, and their and to you know to risk being sued um, and and all of that stuff just in order to get that information out there, which I thought was so important. And I really wanted to kind of hold them up as an example of what you can do. Yeah. Well, isn't litigation probably the major factor in things like this, uh, aside from? quote, not having resources to do investigative journalism, maybe like TCG or American Theater, which basically promotes uh, artists and promotes productions. And it's sort of like a college alumni magazine, in a sense. It tells you all the good things about this. Um, but to be prepared to actually do the kind of deep investigative work, they probably weren't pre you know, prepared for it. I think uh, part of it... I I think by resources, they also mean resources in case we get sued. Yes. Like, you know, number of lawyers on your side. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because that could be expensive. And even if you win, it could take years. And um, it's not a question of who's right and wrong. It's a question of who can out-litigate the other, which usually means billable hours. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, because of Stormy Daniels, we all know more about because of Trump in general, we all know more about defamation lawsuits than anybody knew. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and it turns out that it's pretty hard to prove defamation because a journalist who's writing, say, a Me Too story um, presumably has multiple accounts, you know, ha has backed up their sources, um, has fact checked everything, has run it through their lawyers it would be very hard for anyone to prove that that publication was actually knowingly printing falsehoods. And that's what defamation is. It's knowingly printing a falsehood. So I'm a little suspect of the fear of litigation because the burden is very strongly on the person suing. Um, you know, they would have to call all of the witnesses that the paper interviewed and they would have to somehow try to prove that all of those people were lying and that the publication knew that they were lying. Right. So I don't I, I tend to feel like that fear is a little bit more overblown, but I think there were a number of factors for them. I think that I think being sued was one of them. Um, I think, like you said, it's not you know, it's a cheerleading organization, not an investigative journalism um, organization. I think that's a big part of it. True. Uh, it's it's widespread. The, the, the number of incidents of Me Too incidents of abuse of of 
abuse of power uh, are seem to be without end. And it, not only in theater, but in, in practically every profession. But again, getting it out there and finding ways to educate women and educate the next generation of possible victims or potential victims. I hate to use that word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do we go about that? Well, um, I mean, so TCG at this point, it's looking like they're moving towards publishing something. Apparently, they only really know of one major person that who hasn't already been outed. It looks like they are taking steps to make that public, which I applaud them mm-hmm. for. Yep. I, think, I think that that's a huge part of it, obviously, is not um, sitting on these names, not being polite, not keeping the information secret on behalf of the theaters or the artistic directors, um, being willing to name names to one another is an important part of it. Um, I mean, you mentioned educating women, which I think is really important. You know, if I had, if I had known that I had the right to complain about my high school teacher, uh, things could have gone very differently. Um, and, and so it's important to teach young women that they don't in fact have to put up with this. I do think a lot of them think, oh, this is the price of entry and it's just the way it is. And if I want to have a career, I have to just learn how to live with it. But I think equally important is educating men as to what is not okay. Um, I think that a lot of the men who behave, who do the, the, the less egregious things, um, don't always necessarily realize that they're doing something they're not supposed to do. Take, for example, intimacy on stage. Um, a lot of professional actors know that you don't use tongue in a stage kiss, but a lot of them don't. And the reason is they've never been taught it. No one has ever actually said to them, no, in this case, we don't want you to be so in the moment and so in tune with your impulses that you change the choreography of this sexual moment. That actually has to be taught. Guys are not going to figure that out on their own, nor are girls. People don't instinctively, you know, we're, we're not born knowing what the, what the limits are in um, stage intimacy. Right. That, that actually has to be taught. Um, and I think similarly, you know, people have to be taught what kind of jokes you can make in the rehearsal room and, um, you know, what kind of questions uh, directors can ask actors. As you said a minute ago, this abuse is prevalent in every field. There's a challenge in the theater field because what we do is so intimate. Yes. You know, it involves such a level of intimacy and trust. um, And therefore, it's ripe to be abused. But also, it's difficult to navigate what those boundaries are when you are in the intimate, creative relationship with someone. Um, it's, It's a challenge. We don't just automatically know what's right and what's wrong. And I think we all need to be taught that. Boundaries need to be set. Absolutely. Yes. And and I think it's up to the director, number one, or uh, the producer or whoever is in charge. But I I would go to the director because they're nominally in charge of every production. What is allowable? What is not? What he expects, what he or she expects, pardon me, um, as far as everything that comes to intimacy, touching, romance, possible sex in a scene um, and what is allowable and what is respectful. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I remember having a conversation with some students at one point I was directing a show with students in it and um, two of the students in it had dated previously and broken up. 
And then the guy was dating another woman in the cast. And it was and it was difficult. There was some tension between those three people and, and as a result between everybody else. And I remember having to talk to the couple that was currently dating about their behavior in rehearsal with one another and their PDA and um, the way they kind of, you know, uh, allowed their relationship to seep into the rehearsal room. And of course, they didn't realize that what they were doing was making everybody else incredibly uncomfortable, in particular the ex-girlfriend. But because she was so uncomfortable, everybody else was too. Mm. They didn't realize that. They weren't trying to sexualize the rehearsal room. They were just two 19-year-old kids <laughs> in love. They needed someone to say, you know, actually, you need to keep that, that part of your relationship out of the room. That might be a little bit impossible, especially at age 19. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, they had to be taught. They were not going to yeah. figure that out instinctively. They had to be taught. Yeah. I think the first time I actually became aware of explicit sexuality on stage was when I saw How I Learned to Drive. Mm. Um, familiar with that play? Yes. Okay. Uh, everything was fine up until pretty much the very last scene where everything that had been hinted at all of a sudden became unbelievably explicit. And I remember sitting there in my seat horrified absolutely horrified at what yeah. was the touching and uh the, the the sexual abuse that was happening on stage and i started thinking about it later saying how do you prep the actors for this and how do you make this situation as real as possible without exploitation yeah yeah, it's a very important question. Um, my MO as a director has always been to treat any sexual um, activity on stage the same way that I would treat violence, the same way that I would treat fight, because it's the same goal, like you just said, how do we make this look incredibly real without victimizing anybody? Um, so it's a matter of choreographing it in the same way that you would choreograph a fight so that no one's actually getting hurt. Um, and, and, and the process involves, it, you have to take your time, you have to allow a lot of time in rehearsal, and you have to talk about consent. You have to say, can he put your hand, his hand here? Can you put your hand there? Is it okay if we do this? Um, so that the actors feel safe the whole time. I think a lot of um, directors don't realize how much time they have to schedule for that sort of work. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't think it's one that directors are taught how to prepare for in many cases? Not at all. You know, I was actually never taught. I, I went to graduate school at Columbia University. I had a fantastic education there. Absolutely no complaints. But I don't remember that ever coming up. I don't remember in three years ever having a conversation about how do you stage sex. Yeah. It's, it's, hmm, it's definitely one of those things that needs to be taught. Let's kick back a little bit here. I want to go back to your article because you mentioned... At one point, uh, you're talking about Lee Troll of the Dallas Theater Center. Um, then you move on to, you mention uh, Israel Horowitz uh, and several other people, you know, Gordon Edelstein, for one, who have been, who had been practicing sexual abuse for a number of years. And, and that one article on, uh, on Lee Troll was, as we said before, was just absolutely mind-boggling about how long these sorts of things had gone on. And yet, once they were caught, I guess, one of these, one of these guys received a severance pay, somebody else received a, 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 a blanket, well, he's going on to new and better things kind of stuff. And pretty much 
several of them walked away without, until this article came out and the other article came out, without much being said about it. Mm -hmm. And it leads me to my next question, which is, who was in charge when this was going on? What did they know and when did they know it? Why the hell didn't they do anything about it? Yeah. Yeah, it's really disturbing because all of these stories do contain evidence that complaints had been made for years, both officially and unofficially. You know, and women always kind of know we're always telling each other the stories about who to stay away from. Um, it's, it's, all, it's always been an open secret for us. But to have it then confirmed that it also has been officially there are complaints have been made and, and brushed under the rug. I mean, one of the things I heard about Dallas Theater Center was that <clears throat> they were able to trace. They would talk to a woman who said, I made a complaint on a specific date. And then they would look at the dates when Dallas Theater Center did like sexual harassment trainings for their staffs. And it would always be like the next week after one of the women had said a complaint had been made. Mm. And it was like, oh, okay. So you were sort of nominally dealing with this, like obviously not actually solving the problem, but doing enough to, to maybe cover your asses. Um, but it doesn't appear, you know, that anybody ever actually sat down with the person being complained about and said, you have to stop. Um, and, and that's deeply disturbing. I think we could do a whole podcast about why, um, humans allow that sort of thing to go on. You know, if you look at Larry Nasser and U S gymnastics, how, how is it possible that all of those parents of those kids knew what was happening and didn't do anything about it or didn't believe their kids. Um, so many people knew. Um, and I think a big part of it is shame that we as human beings, we have so much shame about sex that um, it's it's hard to confront it head on, you know? We do. I mean, we, we, we promote violence like it's nobody's business. You can go to a movie and see a person absolutely dismembered piece by piece live. Okay, and but you can't go to a movie and, well, very few instances of explicit loving sexuality, unless, of course, there is a violent aspect to it. Right. Exactly. Then apparently it's fine to show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a twisted set of, of values we have here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's very hard when especially when these men are idols of some kind, when they are good artists and they're making good art it can be very difficult to reconcile that that person is also in some other way, not a good person. Mm -hmm. that also doing something bad. Um, you know, we compartmentalize things in our brains very well and, and can keep those ideas kind of separate. I, it's, I, I have to confess my, um, some of my favorite films were by Roman Polanski. Yeah. He's a brilliant filmmaker, but he's a sexual predator and a rapist. Yeah. At this point, I don't watch Woody Allen movies anymore. Neither and it, do I. it kind of depresses me, though, because his movies are really good. Yeah, some of them anyway. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, yeah, some of these guys are really, really great artists. And, and it's complicating. And I don't mean to imply at all that that should be an excuse or should let them off the hook. I just think that it is very difficult for people to reconcile that um, great artists can also sometimes be really shitty people. Exactly. Yeah. It's getting back to the quote authorities in this, in this you know, situation who should have known what did they know and why didn't they do anything about it? Again, you mentioned you know, litigation, which is one thing you, you accuse somebody and, and of course they're going to deny it. 
Uh, and that might lead to, you know, dollars spent on both sides that nobody can really or want to afford. And then there's the shame of having employed these people for so long. I mean, you know, Dallas Theater Center and, and all those other places all of a sudden have to turn around and say, you know, it's we've had this guy employed for 15 years and he's been one of our shining stars. And you know what? We screwed up. All right. We uh, we either knew about this and didn't do anything or we didn't know about it and we should have known about it. And it, it yeah. might be such a bitter pill for people to own up to because then the fear is, well, this organization doesn't have its act together. Maybe we shouldn't respect them. I guess so. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have a hard time um, admitting faults and taking responsibility for things. I think in in reality, it turns out not to be as painful a thing to do as we we tend to think it's going to be. Mm. Um, you know, so I still I hold out hope that more artistic leaders are going to do that, are going to be willing to say, "I'm sorry that we did not take care of this before. I'm sorry that we did not protect you." Um, but yeah, it does seem that a lot of them so far are really unwilling to do that. Yeah. Well, as a young lady of my acquaintance said to me a couple of weeks ago on this very subject, uh, it's basically the male inability to reject sexual dominance. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it feels totally natural that men act this way. It seems totally normal. Of course they, of course they act this way and of course they should. And, and I think a lot of people say that it's probably harmless. Well, let's look at who's saying that. It's probably men. Um, it's probably people who've never been treated that way. Yeah, true. You know, they, they don't, they're not able to imagine the harm that is done because they haven't felt it themselves. Aside from your article, I ran into a couple of uh, other articles. One was a link from yours. It was a link to Monica Byrne. Yeah. Um, and her... Uh, her decision to all of a sudden quote, come clean with everything that had happened to her or describe the litany of abuses that she had endured. Um, and it was, it was again, quite shocking and open and just chilling to absolutely read because you keep thinking of, well, if this has happened to her and it happened to, um, Oh, good gosh. What's that? Uh, what's that other young woman, uh, the other woman's name, Oh, Annie Finch. Mm. Finch had a uh, uh, had a, a piece called in, in her blog, Literary Sexual Abuse, Things I've Been Ashamed to Share About Being a Writer Until Now. And that goes into um, details about what had happened to her and what people said to her, um, some of which are <sighs> unbelievably rude and shocking. Mm. And this is normalized. Yeah, this is normalized, and, and it seems it seems that all this has to be unnormalized and renormalized as what we were talking about before. Respect, and so what's happening with that? I mean, I mean, as far as you know, have you seen changes taking place that give you heart? You know, I, it's astounding some of the with these come as, these stories when they come out. Like you said, the things that people have been saying and doing seem shocking. Um, I mean, they are talking. One thing I've realized is that the men <clears throat> who do this kind of harassment and abuse are very good about not saying those things in front of certain people. So, for example, I was a colleague of a guy uh, who 
told me to my face um, he that he liked working with students, that he liked sleeping with his students, and that it was because he believed that students today, girl, female students in particular, watch a lot of porn, and therefore it makes them really good at sex. And he just said this to me right out. Like, this was just a normal thing for him, as if this was a normal thing to say to any female colleague, that he sleeps with his students, and the reason that he likes to do it is because he thinks they're good at sex, because he thinks they watch a lot of porn. And I sort of realized, mm. this guy isn't saying that to his male colleagues. He's only saying that to people like me, because he knows that no one will believe me. <clears throat> he knows he can get away with it to me. Maybe he so thinks I, he can impress you. Yes, Exactly. So I think that's a big part of it, too, is that the artistic leaders have um, relationships to these male artists that are completely different than the relationships those male artists then have to the women around them. And they don't see it. You know, these guys are good at hiding the behavior from them. Right. It's very hard for them. You know, if I then go to my boss and say, this is what he said to my boss, that's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. The person I know wouldn't say that. Or if he did, it would just be a joke or you know, they just, they don't, they don't see that version of that person. Or maybe they think you're trying to defame whoever it is unfairly. Oh yeah. Yeah. They'll often think we're making it up because it's such an extreme thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was what happened with the Anita Hill thing way back when. Yeah. Yeah. Who would ever put a pubic hair on a Coke can? That's too absurd to be true. Hey, nobody I know would do that. Come on. <laughs> Um, but you're right. They are that now that the stories are being told, not just between women, but to from women to men, um, the, the truly shocking nature of this kind of behavior is really coming out. And, and it's really important. Although I do think at a certain point, we've got to move past the storytelling phase. Like right now, a lot of artistic leaders and industry leaders like TCG are asking women to tell these stories over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's re-traumatizing to have to keep talking about this. At a certain point, they need to say, okay, we get it. It's horrible. And here's what we're going to do to change it. Instead of just continuing to ask us to tell our stories over and over and over again. It is wonderful that now everybody knows the extent of the shocking and horrible things that these kinds of abusers do. But the next step has to be these leaders not the victims, the leaders saying what they're going to do to change things. Yeah. Going back to, um, going right off of that, um, going back to Monica Byrne, who I mentioned earlier. Yes. Her piece uh, had two quotes, which I found highly, highly significant. The first one is, uh, this is how the machinery of enablement works. And this is how it breaks when individual victims take on the risk of speaking out. Mm. You know, it's go, having the testimony is is heartbreaking, but we need to hear the. I think we need to hear these women's stories. Yes, just, just to let them know we're listening. Let them know they're not alone. Give them validation, which is a terrible word, and I hate using that, but I think it fits in this in this particular case. Yeah. Um, and then she ends her article, um, and this is going to be a tad explicit, but she says, I'm saying it now because I'm done. I've had it. I absolutely do not give a fuck about protecting men anymore at the expense of my career and mental health mm. at all. None of you, not one. 
I don't care how powerful or influential you are. I don't care how trendy or acclaimed your thing is. Fuck you. You can't do this to women anymore. And now is the time when you're going to start learning the hard way. If this post gets me blacklisted in the theater world, whatever, I'll never stop writing. Mm. And yeah, I thought, you know, that took a ton of guts to write. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's well-written. It's passionate. Um, it's so important. And she's right that that is the risk that women take every day. We have to decide, do we speak up about this stuff and risk our careers or do we stay silent and therefore maybe be able to get to a higher level or work for another person that we want to work for? Even in writing my article for HowlRound, I was hesitant to criticize TCG too heavily because I would like to write for American Theater Magazine. Sure, yeah. I would like to be employed by their member institutions. Um, you know, it's risking and sacrificing a lot for women to speak out about these things. Well, I'm that's so because the hierarchy I'm... is against them. Or well, the hierarchy is, look, let me take that back. That was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> the hierarchy is not representative of them. Right. Right. I had um, my very last podcast, we had this very same, touched on this very same discussion about how do we change things. And the consensus was, well, we changed the leadership. We changed, we changed the boards that run X organization, Y organization, Z organization, because that is where the power resides. And that is where the repercussions hit the final wall and decisions are made. Yep. I think it's hugely important. Um, the, the, the whole book push in American theater for equity, diversity, and inclusion for this um, set of values that, that opens the doors to more people and includes more people and gives more people an equity of experience. Uh, theaters are increasingly realizing that a necessary part of achieving that is changing their boards. That if you want to have a diverse theater, you need a diverse board. And if you want to have an equitable theater, you need an equitable, uh, equitable board. Yeah. You're absolutely right that that's where the leadership comes from. And those are the people who have to have the artistic director's back if that artistic director decides to take a stand. Well, I mean, it's very simple. If you've got a, if you've got a serious complaint like sexual abuse and you're afraid to bring it up, why are you afraid to bring it up? Because somebody is not going to understand you. Somebody's going to deny it. Somebody's not going to have that experience or know what it is that you're talking about. Yep. And in fact, there was a board member uh, in the case of the Alley Theater who just continued praising Greg Boyd even after he had had to step down because she saw him as such a visionary artistic leader and such um, a, a boon to the theater and to the Houston community. She, it seemed that she simply couldn't accept that this person had also been doing something terrible that whole time. She simply could not accept it. And this was a board member, you know, publicly saying. Sure. I think this person's being mistreated. These are heavy issues. These are serious issues, and they're a lot to deal with. It's very hard to swallow this kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, and I just want to say thank you to Monica um, and to the women like her who have taken such passionate stands and who have been so open and been willing to sacrifice um, their connections and their careers and their reputations because we do, we get called troublemakers. You know? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's anybody who stands up against the, the existing hierarchy as a troublemaker, a whistleblower, or some other disreputable kind of thing. You know, it's, yeah. uh, yeah. It, <laughs> fight, <laughs> fighting the hierarchy has never been easy. <laughs> Not so, at all. What kind of kickback did you get from your article? What, what kind of responses did you get? 
Um, mostly positive responses, um, fewer comments than, than we expected. Um, I think that what people really want is to know the information that TCG gathered. And of course I didn't have access to that information. Um, so, uh, the article didn't make as much of a necessarily a, a splash as I think some other some of the journalism that I talked about in the article has, has made simply because it didn't raise any new accusations. Um, but I do think that uh, people found it useful to see the kind of scope of the issue laid out to see both how far certain places have gone in changing their culture and also to see how little overall has actually happened. <laughs> you know, how, how few people have actually been um, affected by this so far. Well, I think the key thing is uh, keeping the momentum going without oversaturating the audience. People tend to get tired of hearing me too, me too, me too, you know, and after a while they move on to something else. It's just the nature of the, the human attention span. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, so what's next for you? Um, well, I am about to start a tenure track position at the University of Memphis. Hey, uh, good for I you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be the head of the graduate directing program there. And uh, they have actually hired me to redesign their curriculum. And so as part of that, I am very, very specifically making equity, diversity, inclu and inclusion a part of the director training there. So students who come to study directing there will learn how to do classics, how to do new work, how to do devised work. They'll get, they'll get a great base in, you know, everything you need to know to be a director, um, but with a particular emphasis on creating social change. So we will do things like intimacy workshops where we actually um, talk about and investigate how to stage um, sex. Um, we will uh, do diversity um, workshops where we learn about how to use inclusive language. Um, and, you know, and these kinds of issues are, are Historically, they have been dealt with a little bit separately from the actual practice of making the art. Um, people think that they're sort of institutional things. But actually, when, when it comes down to it, white supremacy and, and pa the patriarchy is embedded in literally the very actions that we choose to play on stage. The vocabulary, the vocabulary that we use in making work has to change in order to keep it from reinforcing that white, white supremacist patriarchal worldview. Um, so I'm going to try to create a directing program that does that. This sounds like it's going to be one hell of a program. I think so. I'm pretty excited. Uh, good luck. I don't think you're going to need it, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, Holly Elder, it's been more than a pleasure. It's, it's, it's been absolutely wonderful having you here um, talking about such horrific subjects. Um, <laughs> But thank you thank so you, much. Thank you very much for doing it. And we wish you all the best. And we look forward to hearing. Oh, you know what? How can we find you? How can people who are listening to this to, to this podcast? Ah. Find, yeah, find out more about you and what you're doing. Very good question. So Twitter, I'm on Twitter, HLD6 Odd Blend. Um, I have a, my, my Facebook page for Holly Elder. And I also have a website, which is hollydurr.com. That one doesn't have the L in it. Um, but basically, if you Google me, you can find all three of those things, as well as archives of all the articles that I've written for HowlRound. I've also written extensively for Ms. Magazine. 
um, and for a few other national publications. And so do a quick Google search and all those things will pretty much come up on the first page. Sounds great. All right. Good luck to you, Holly, and uh, all the best. Thank you so much, George. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to Onstage Offstage. Onstage Offstage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 